This is yet another last minute episode because as we've established a gazillion times, I don't like myself very much and my personal form of self-harm includes sabotaging the things that I love by procrastinating. I've also somehow convinced myself that I do my best work when I'm under pressure and that may be true but I think it's only because I have so much practice screwing myself over by giving myself the minimum amount of time to fulfill a task that I literally had to adapt to the circumstances of my own creation. Also, I'm sick, so I might sound a little weird, and I only have one hour to record this, so we're just going to try to speed through it and do it all in one take. Before I start, I would like to explain my absence. Um, where do I even begin? The reason why I've been away for three months is still kind of elusive to me, uh, but I think it has to do with the fact that I've been trying to come to terms with my identity. <laughs> I mean, it's a tale as old as time. Girl goes to an educational institution for 18 years, her sense of worth relies on her academic achievement, the pressures put on her from external and later internalized forces don't leave much room for a life outside of school, her identity thus becomes contingent on her status as a student. She finally graduates with hopes and dreams of a regular work schedule and some time for hobbies. After all, she did so well in school, and wasn't that supposed to be a surefire way of succeeding in the real world? But alas, meritocracy is a farce, and she knew it all along. But she never really felt it. And now, the one thing she relied on for a sense of order within a world riddled with chaos, is gone. So yeah, it's been tough. I mean, don't get me wrong, I realize that I'm in such a position of privilege because I did actually get a job after graduating. It's just not what I thought it would be. I actually have two paid jobs, but they're both pretty similar. I do respite care for folks with disabilities and child and youth work, which sounds really cool and professional, and I do like my jobs, alhamdulillah. The only caveat is that they're both contract work, which basically means that I'm self-employed, <laughs> and as you may know, that means I have no job stability or a regular working schedule which is not ideal, particularly because I'm a person who requires a schedule. And the fact that I don't have one is so demotivating and soul-crushing, which I realize is dramatic. But that's how I feel. So, yeah, I've been pretty much wasting away. And it's nuts, because as I just established, I have nothing but free time, but I just don't know what to do with myself. And I was literally talking to my mom about the fact that I really fell off the wagon with regards to my podcast, 
and she was so surprised because she knows how important this is to me. I always made time to upload bi-weekly during exam season when I was working 20 hours a week at that thankless job that I was finally able to quit, um, along with most of their other supervisors, which keeps my petty ass warm at night. They deserved it though. Management was absolute shit, but whatever. I'm not gonna get into it. Honestly, the reason why I quit in the first place was not even because I hated my job, which, don't get me wrong, I absolutely did. It was actually because, due to the nature of my contract work, I feel like I can't make any commitments to anything else because I never know if a new contract will be available and I'll have to shift everything around again. And it really sucks because I had a real opportunity to work a full-time job with benefits and I got through two rounds of interviews, but I fudged the second one because I had intense anxiety and the person who arranged the interview was mean to me because of a scheduling issue and I was just rattled and unsure of myself the whole time, so of course I didn't get it, but I know it wasn't meant for me. And the people I work with now are so chill and incredibly nice and encouraging, and I absolutely love them. I just wish I could build some more momentum and have more clients during the day. And because of all that, I've just been down in the dumps. One life crisis after another. <laughs> Um, in my attempts to lift my spirits, I've been watching some self-help and productivity channels, which, despite the fact that those two genres are often grouped together, they are arguably the antithesis of one another, but I digress. There's this concept that I learned watching these videos called Parkinson's Law, which describes how a task will take up all of the time that you've allotted to it even if it could be completed in a shorter period, and that's what really happened to venting sesh. I also suffer from perfectionism, which lends itself to procrastination and other self-sabotaging behaviors. At one point, I literally would wake up, go on TikTok for an obscene amount of time, then hate myself for it, and try to gain some semblance of productivity by writing random things in my planner and color coordinating my tasks. <laughs> my avatar was really struggling. Just doing the dumbest stuff to get a sense of meaning and value? I was one minor inconvenience away from just banging my head on a wall repeatedly until my brain would just go night-night. <laughs> it sounds really morbid, um, and it was, but it also wasn't. I don't know. I'm okay. I'm obviously still working through some of the glitches in the matrix. Um, I also really need to invest in a therapist, but I don't get those for free anymore, and I make less at my current job than I did working minimum wage because I hardly get hours because contract work is the devil. Um, and don't even get me started on the seasonal affective disorder that has my ass in a chokehold every winter. To end on a nicer note, I've started taking some action in a desperate attempt to gain control in my chaotic life. I got a new family doctor, and she prescribed some beta blockers for my performance anxiety. 
I recently signed up for online French courses. I'm currently looking into master's programs so I can be prepared to apply next year. And I've been getting back into podcasting, which hopefully lasts, but I'm not making any promises. My mind is just a jumble of thoughts right now. I hope my ramblings were somewhat coherent, but I can never tell because I'm pretty sure I have an undiagnosed attention disorder. Hello and welcome, finally, <laughs> to the 16th episode of Venting Sesh. I'm your host, Omhani Suger. Thank you for tuning in. That was quite the intro, but we're just going to move on and get into the topic for today. Delaying the production of episode 16 actually proved to be useful because, as is the case every week, I wasn't sure what I wanted to vent about for this session until a couple months ago when I was scrolling on TikTok, as I'm known to do, and found a particularly interesting discourse regarding a problematic author. Let me set the scene. I'm in my work clothes after getting called in for a four-hour shift at the part-time minimum wage job that I hate with my phone in hand. I'm mindfully because I take TikTok very seriously, swiping through my immaculately tailored For You page when I see a stitched video by a BookTok creator I follow criticizing Sarah J. Mass. Now, I recently rediscovered my love of reading. I used to read all the time, but once I got into high school and university, I got busy with my academic responsibilities and I kind of fell off. Anyways, to get recommendations for books, I found myself on the bookish side of TikTok. That is, the aforementioned book talk. But I'd never heard of Mass, and it's probably because she is most infamous for writing fairy smut, <laughs> which isn't my genre of preference. Not that I'm opposed to romance. I actually love love, as cynical as I am about it. It's just that explicit descriptions of sex aren't entirely conducive to my conservative Muslim sensibilities, um, but also Mass writes lengthy series, and I don't have the commitment levels for more than like two or three books revolving around the same cast of characters. Suffice it to say, I was not familiar with this Sarah person. But the TikTok video in question highlighted that Mass is a potential Zionist apologist who likely financially supports the IDF because of its connection to her grandmother, who volunteers at an Israeli army base. It sounds a little convoluted when I say it, but it made sense in the actual video. The creator's main argument was that she was tired of the BookTok community promoting authors like Mass, who even if she's not a Zionist, has, quote, objectively shitty books, end quote, but more importantly, lacks diverse representation in her work. I went to the original video that was stitched, and in the comments, which are now disabled, the creator had written something along the lines of genuinely enjoying Mass's work as a separate entity from her, and believing that we should separate the art from the artist when it comes to these things. 
My initial issue with this was that it seemed like the original creator was dismissing the very valid concerns of the people who dropped SJM as a form of protesting her disregard and occasional <laughs> why can't I say this word? and occasional misrepresentation of BIPOC as well as her supposed affiliation with Zionism. So I left a comment pretty much summing up what I just said, and it turned into a conversation with the creator, who mentioned that as a, quote, black gay woman, I'm always disrespected, and the reason I separate the art from the artist is because if I didn't, there would be no artist left, end quote. Furthermore, to the original creator's defense, she was not aware of Massa's controversy, and her video was not at all a political statement. I believe her intention was just to make a joke about enjoying trashy writing, as so many of us do. And I didn't know anything about Mass either. I had to search Sarah J. Mass controversy before I found some posts regarding diversity in her books, or the lack thereof. Not much about the Zionism issue. And whether or not Mass is a Zionist is not entirely clear to me, and I'm not particularly interested in finding out. I've never read Mass's books in the past, and I'm not inclined to read them now that there's even an allegation that she's an avid supporter of ethnic cleansing. Why did I share this long-ass story? <laughs> well, I thought a lot about the comment of separating the art from the artist, and I figured I'd talk about it briefly today. Let me start by giving you a brief history of the concept of separating the art from the artist grâce à Vox News. Writer Constance Grady highlights three main critical theories used to analyze literature. New criticism is our first contender. She came about in the early 20th century as a radical method of analysis meant to legitimize the study of literature because every discipline wants a slice of that juicy prestige and validation that comes with being considered a science. The new critics argued that objectively good art, first of all, was something that existed, and that it was characterized by its ability to stand on its own. T.S. Eliot wrote, quote, I have assumed as axiomatic that a creation... A work of art is autonomous. New criticism is ironically old news now, but it did evolve during the mid 20th century into postmodernism, a word that still triggers my fight or flight response. <laughs> Postmodernists believe in the death of the author, likely the inspiration for that Panic at the Disco song. This trope is often conflated with ideas of separating the artist from their art, but they're not exactly synonymous. The death of the author, or more generally, the artist, is more about validating various interpretations of a piece of art, i.e. the artist's intentions in creating their work are in no way superior to the projections or impositions of the person consuming said work. Separating the art from the artist, on the other hand, is largely a means of placating our conscience when engaging with problematic artists' work. 
but I'm getting ahead of myself. The final theorists were the new historicists, who countered previous notions that art could exist in a vacuum. As you may be well aware, nothing exists in a vacuum, except maybe some dust, spider webs, and that sock you lost under your bed two years ago. We're assuming that you only vacuum under your bed every two years, uh, but let's hope not. Uh, furthermore, art is the last thing to be separated from its creator. This might vary across mediums, but I think it's safe to say that an artist is intrinsically linked to their work, which is what makes art so special in the first place. It's personal. It's intimate. It's a deep dive into the human psyche. It's an even deeper dive into the socio-political conditions of the time and place in which it was created. Separating an artist from their art is doing a great disservice to the entire discipline. But once again, I'm getting ahead of myself. Before I move on, I think it's fair to criticize the critics. Let's see if you folks can take it like you can dish it. When it comes to academia, it's incredibly important whose voices we amplify. When professors insist on teaching the works of convicted criminals, they're taking space away from folks who might be more deserving of a platform. While I can be more lenient with the average consumer, we have to hold our educators to a higher standard. And I'm not saying to censor education. It's important, crucial even, to learn about the prevalent works of a certain period as they are a reflection of the values of that time and place. The reprehensible behavior of some creatives can even be an enlightening topic of conversation in the classroom. However, I'm just so sick and tired of focusing on the same problematic white men during every art-based discourse. There are plenty of unproblematic BIPOC creators who are just as talented, if not more, who are struggling to gain notoriety. When it comes to more historic works, it might be harder to find the gold. But I'm sure unproblematic artists existed in the 20th and earlier centuries. Why do scholars insist on platforming morally questionable creators? And don't get me wrong, I know nobody's perfect. Whomst among us hasn't done something we weren't supposed to do? If I had a dollar for every time I jaywalked, I would have stopped getting dollars years ago. People are already too eager to hit Muslims with their car. I am not about to make it easier for them to do so. <laughs> but that's besides the point. We all falter and fail. But not all crimes are created equal. There's a difference between a problematic tweet and a criminal offense bestie. <laughs> and I feel like that's the thing that gets lost in the proverbial sauce of all of this. We've now covered the new critics turned postmodernists and the new historicists. Try saying that ten times fast. <laughs> and both are very academic approaches to relating to art, which means that although they break the ice on the matter of yeeting artists into oblivion, they don't really answer our question. I don't think the average art enjoyer is going to consider whether or not they're partial to a more early 1900s philosophy or a later one. There are a couple of things to consider when addressing the general public and how some people respond when they learn that their favorite artist is not so cool. 
The first is the basis of the decision to cancel or not to cancel, while the second is the way people conceptualize separating the monster from Dr. Frankenstein. According to Rowan Ellis in her video, Can You Separate Art from the Artist?, people will make decisions based on profit, principle, and perception. Oftentimes, the argument for dropping a problematic creator is that continuing to support their work lines their pockets. And who wants to be funding a serial sex offender? This is fine enough, except that there are ways of consuming art that don't financially support the artist. Pirating movies, borrowing a book, illegally downloading music. So, some people look within and consider their principles. Regardless of whether or not we're actually giving them our money, when we consume art by a problematic artist, we're sending a message that their behavior is okay. It's not bad enough for us to cease supporting them in any manner. This also comes with a set of issues. We have to consider the behavior in question. Was the artist accused of wrongdoing, or were they actually convicted? What was the temporal and spatial context of their behavior? Who else was involved in the piece? Do we throw the whole thing away because of one quote-unquote bad apple? Other folks consider the broader implications of supporting a problematic artist. Through consuming someone's creations, we are maintaining their power and status within their respective industries. And, as we continue to learn, it is this very power that enables despicable individuals to cause harm. All that being said, <laughs> how do people consolidate the unethical behavior of the artists they enjoy? They use black and white thinking, like the aforementioned TikToker, who told me that she separates art from the artist because if she didn't, there would be no artist left. But this is a false binary, as Vera Wilde puts it. Not all artists are pedophiles, or serial abusers, or convicted rapists. They also claim that art exists as a separate entity, free from the artist's personal experience and perceptions. But we've already debunked this earlier. Art has meaning. It has external influences and inspirations instilled by the artist. That's why people enjoy art. So, what do we do? Before I get to my conclusion, I do want to share my personal experience with enjoying the masterpieces of shitty individuals. I love listening to music, okay? I listen to it in the car, in the shower, when I'm doing my makeup, when I'm making my breakfast in the morning. I have a playlist for everything. Recently, Spotify came out with their 2021 Rewind, and my top artist was Kanye West. Okay, don't cancel me, wait, hear me out first. I actually shared the screenshot on a group chat with the comment, am I problematic? And it was not a safe space. I was attacked, um, but the revelation got me thinking about this issue even further because I don't stand for most of what Kanye spews on the internet. I recognize that he has a position of immense power and influence, and instead of using his status to uplift the black community, he uses it to spew inflammatory bullshit. 
He's also a major prick. Like, not a pleasant person to be around, I would imagine. Yeah, some of that may have to do with his diagnosis, but that doesn't excuse his harmful behavior. That being said, he releases some bangers. <laughs> his stuff is kind of good. Uh, like the Yay album. It's kind of a good album. And a lot of his music makes sense to me and really resonates. On the other hand, I refuse to listen to a single Chris Brown song, even though, as much as I hate to admit it, he has a decent sound. To me, Chris Brown is an ugly, abusive piece of crap who isn't some sort of lyrical genius anyways, and he's a repeat offender. Rihanna is not the only victim of his crimes. He literally had allegations of abuse towards another woman and got sent to anger management or something. He has severe problems, and he needs some sort of intervention whether it's rehabilitation or incarceration. I'm more in favor of the latter. He should suffer the way he made those women suffer, along with Harvey, Wiener, where it doesn't belong, Steen, R. Kelly, but the R stands for rape, and that Supreme Court justice whose name I don't even remember because he's worth less than the shit at the bottom of my shoe. I guess the difference for me <laughs> is that Kanye is a decent artist, and everyone kind of just accepts that he talks out of his ass most of the time. Of course, that could just be my perspective from my echo chamber. It's not unlikely that he has people rallying behind him, using his idiotic tweets to justify their racism and hate. So the question remains, what do we do? How can I live with the cognitive dissonance brought about by my genuine appreciation for the lyricism and production of the Yay album? when it was created by such a problematic person. Surprise! There is no exact answer. Art is subjective. You can't control whether or not you enjoy a particular piece. You also can't erase the memories and nostalgia tied to something that was made by someone who has since been caught for their misdeeds. At the same time, I don't think separating the art from the artist is the solution. At the risk of belaboring this point, art is a part of its creator. You can't spell creator without art. It has to be rearranged, but it's in there. Um, wait, no. That doesn't, hold on. You can't spell art without artist. Yes, you can. <laughs> Never mind. Forget I said any of it. Um, you cannot disconnect the two. While I am not in the business of policing people's taste in art, unless you're my friend Sana, in which case, I will drag your taste through the mud. That shit is treacherous. I do believe it's important to acknowledge the harmful behaviors of some artists. It's important to acknowledge what our support of that artist really means, and whether or not that's something we can live with as consumers. Finally, it's important to seek out artists who create good in the world. They exist. Art that offers us various perspectives and encourages healthy, inclusive, adaptive behavior. As consumers, we have the power to amplify the voices of such artists instead of drowning them out in the sea of monsters. If you found this episode in any way helpful, please consider sharing it with a friend. I just want to reach as many people as I possibly can so I can make the most impact. I'm signing off this session, but before I leave, I'd just like to remind you that things will get better. 
So stay optimistic. Just don't be complicit. Until next time.